Last month, news broke that a Harvard Business School professor, known for researching dishonesty and unethical behavior, has been suspended for dishonesty and unethical behavior. Namely, this research professor was uh, caught falsifying research. This professor, an expert in behavioral science, has built a prolific career, uh, both in academics as well as in corporate world, advising companies like Google and Goldman Sachs. Uh, Goldman Sachs, excuse me, provided this expert or this professor has provided expert analysis in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and now over a re over a decade of falsified research has been brought to light. And in a story chock full of irony, perhaps the most ironic thing is that this professor, whose name I'm not giving you, they've been through enough, you can Google it if you want, the, this professor recently published a paper titled, Case Study, What's the Right Career Move After a Public Failure? Honestly, this kind of thing may cause us to chuckle, but it is not surprising, is it? Hypocrisy and dishonesty seem to get people ahead, and many times they are not held to account. In our world, justice seems slow or oftentimes non-existent. And it gets far more harmful than falsified data from a professor at Harvard Business School, doesn't it? What of child trafficking? What of drug cartels? What even of religious leaders? even supposed Christians who abuse and take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. Will wrongs be righted? Will injustices be addressed? How do you enter into this room to worship today when the last thing that you read in the news or heard on the radio on the way to worship was some great injustice in this world? And you say, well, God rules over this world, and yet injustice exists all over the place, how do you reconcile these together? Well, Psalm 97 helps us. What Psalm 97 shows us is that our worship of God must be grounded in knowledge of His reign over us and in His righteous coming judgment. Let me say that again. Our worship of God must be grounded in knowledge of His reign over us and of His righteous coming judgment judgment. I invite you to follow along in Psalm 97 as I read the psalm, and then we will begin to make our way through it. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and burns up His adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the people see His glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. 
Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. So we're going to make our way through this psalm in three acts. First, verses 1 through 6 shows us the Lord reigns and will judge all of creation. One thing that we all must understand, and the Psalms regularly reveal this to us, is that God's Word knows us, as well as the human condition, far better than we know ourselves. We're in a part of the Psalms that features repeated calls to worship for the people of God. So you've had some that stir hearts to worship God because the people are glad, some because they're joyful, some because they have great peace, But undoubtedly, for Christians, you can recall times where your heart overflowed in praise and thanksgiving to God, and it was easy to worship. But now you might have times in your life where your heart doesn't overflow in praise and thanksgiving to God, and it's more difficult to worship. See, Psalm 97 is for the heart that desires to worship God but struggles with the evil of our world. How do I reconcile these two together? You see, the psalm begins with a normal or expected tone in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let many coastlands be glad. Isn't it good to know that we are not on this big rock called earth, hurtling through space as some just cosmic accident? Our future is not left to the whims of chance. Who knows when a black hole might swallow us up? Who knows when some tragic life event might destroy you? Precious Christian, maybe what you need to hear today is very simply what verse 1 tells us. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. We can go about each day confident that the Lord reigns over all of creation and confident even that the Lord reigns over our circumstances. But that raises a number of questions. And maybe the one, the biggest one at the forefront of Psalm 97 is, well, what about evildoers and and, and just evil we see in the world? The Lord reigns over that, doesn't he? Well, look closely at what this psalm does. See, it rejoices in the Lord who reigns in verse 1, and then it immediately makes a beeline to his promised judgment of his creation in verses 2 through 5. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. None of us are insulated from pain, but by the grace of God, we have largely been protected from the most terrible evils that this world knows. So we might read such judgments as, is revealed in verses 2 to 5, and think, whoa, slow down there, God. Let's not go too far with talking of melting your adversaries and fire going before you. Yet, honesty demands that we acknowledge that we would cry out for the judgment of God if our children were ripped away from us by human traffickers. We would cry out for the judgment of God if evil warlords had driven us from our homes and burned our villages. We would cry out for the judgment of God if we we emerged from concentration camps in Germany in 1945 
and we emerged broken, battered, despairing of life. Perhaps you have been the victim of terrible evil and injustice. If this is you, Psalm 97 reminds you and us that the God that we worship will avenge all evil that has been wrought in his creation. Unless we think that this is the kind of promise that should remain in the dustbin of, old, of the Old Testament, far away from Jesus and his message of love that seems to dominate the New Testament, you could look no further than Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 30, and find that Jesus, when speaking of his return, promises to bring mourning upon those who rejected him and worked evil in the world. And yet we read such language as Psalm 97, verses 2 through 5, and we feel it is out of step with our day, don't we? Regularly, we hear voices crying out for justice. Economic justice, climate justice, labor justice, criminal justice, you name it. We live in a world that cries out for justice, but what Psalm 97 shows us is that God is the ultimate judge and bringer of justice. What Psalm 97 shows us is that God sees and God knows and God will act. Perhaps you have objected to Christianity because you felt that the God of the Bible was out of touch with the chaos and evil of our world. I want to urge you to give consideration to the fact that a pivotal part of the promised future work of God is rightly judging all evil in our world. And yet, why do we struggle to trust Him? Why do we struggle with this idea of God's justice that is coming? Is it because we view God in a manner where we don't rightly trust Him to dispense it or to give justice? I don't know if you've watched much of the Andy Griffith show. I certainly enjoy it. I remember always when my dad would take me to get haircuts when I was a young boy, it was always on in the barber shop. But anyway, I, fairly early in the series, there's an episode where Andy, who plays the sheriff uh, in Mayberry, and he has a deputy named Barney Fife, Andy has to leave Mayberry for a day or two, and he leaves Barney in charge. While he is gone, Barney is the one who's going to be in control. Eventually, Andy returns to town, and he notices that everything throughout town seems quiet. And then he enters the sheriff's office and finds that Barney has thrown everyone in jail, everyone in town, for all sorts of heinous violations, broken taillights, jaywalking, you name it. Barney ruled with a tight fist. Is that the conception that you have of God where perhaps, okay, he'll bring justice, but he will bring it in a manner that is unjust? Or you might struggle with the idea of God's justice because you don't see much justice in our world. You think he's the judge just maybe slapping people on the wrist and sending them back out into the world to do more evil. I think sometimes we struggle with this concept of justice because we struggle to trust God. We will welcome his love, but we will question these promises of justice to come. Psalm 97 helps us to blend these two together, how to understand the justice of God and rest in the wisdom of God and the timing of God. Now this brings us a sobering reality. There will come a time, we're going to see this more in just a moment, where, but we, there will come a time when God perfectly delivers justice 
on all who deserve it because of their sin and their rebellion against him. Shouldn't this sober us and compel us in our evangelism? The Christian gospel is not a message of we are the morally upright, we are the dignified ones, and the rest of you will get what is coming to you. No, the wonder of the gospel is that we who were rebellious against God and opposed to Him, and we even worked evil and injustice ourselves. Yet only by the grace of God through Jesus' past work on the cross in our place, only by that do we look forward to the future work that He will do. And so this demands that we ask the question, why? well, what is the source of injustice in our world? What is the root of the evil that, merit, that, 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 that manifests itself in our hearts? Why is God right to bring justice on the world? Well, the root of injustice and evil is a failure to worship rightly. Instead of worshiping God their Creator, many have denied Him and given themselves to idolatry and to trust in false gods. And this is the root of injustice and evil in our world. And this takes us to the second point. So first, the Lord reigns over all of His creation and He will bring judgment. Secondly, in verses 7 to 9, we see the Lord reigns over all false gods. This judgment of God will expose what our hearts have truly hoped in. Said another way, the Lord reigns and all false gods or idols will be destroyed. Perhaps that is a reason why we struggle with this concept of the future judgment and justice of God. Because we know accounts will come due. Now I want you to note something very interesting. Look at verse 7 and then verse 8. And look at how these seem to be in conflict with one another. How can two very distinctly different realities like this exist in the same thing? Verse 7, all, worshiper of, all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Then verse 8, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. Do you see this? Worshippers of images, of idols, they are put to shame. But those who worship the one true God, these are Zion, the daughters of Judah in verse 8, they rejoice and delight in God's judgments. How can these two exist at the same time looking at the same event, namely the coming judgment of God? Put simply, those who worship God through Jesus Christ, trusting His righteousness as their righteousness, His death to atone for their sins, His resurrection as the promise of eternal life, they will see the return of their Lord, and they will do what? They will rejoice. But those who worship and trust in anything else, they are trusting in idols, they are trusting in false gods, and those false gods will be destroyed. For those who hope in the Lord and find Him to be altogether beautiful, they will rejoice. For those who reject the Lord, they refuse to humble themselves under His mighty hand. They and the things that they have trusted in will prove worthless. Now it's at this point you might be thinking, hold, hold on, Stephen. I know I'm not perfect, but come on, this seems harsh. This is why I struggle with this God of the Bible. He seems to go overboard. He seems to be making too much of those who are of other religions or those who simply don't worship Him. Well, here's what the Bible forces us to do. The Bible doesn't let us present ourselves to God how we want Him to perceive us. Rather, it reveals the true condition of our hearts. 
The Bible reveals that God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows the thoughts that we have towards others. God knows every meditation of our hearts. And so the Bible doesn't let us clean ourselves up and try to put our best foot forward. It meets us in total honesty and demands that we take an honest assessment of ourselves. Whereas idolatry promises self-improvement or self-fulfillment while making us the best selves that we can be, the gospel meets us and says you must be made new. Not you must be made better, but you must be made new. And so here's the difference between idolatry and worship of the one true God. And so we talk about idolatry, and, and there's all sorts of ways that you could think about it, and all sorts of idols that we can envision, idols of comfort, idols of peace, idols of security, idols of relationship or intimacy, idol, idols across the board, these things that our hearts desire that, that we think, if I have this, or if I have these things, then I will be at peace. I will be secure. I, all, all will be well. And what the Bible holds before us is that we are only made well, we are only secure in Christ. And so, idolatry is like what John Stark, a pastor in New York City, has said, idols are like slave traders masquerading as abolitionists. You hear that? They're like slave traders masquerading as abolitionists. They promise freedom, but they actually enslave. And so what Psalm 97 offers to us is the ability to be freed from and see the danger and the warning of idolatry and to come to the one true God and worship Him. There's a greenhouse at Wheaton College right now that is the focus of attention as a rare plant that only blooms every decade or so is set to bloom. It's the subject of newspaper articles, social media attention. Everyone is waiting to see this plant bloom. The plant's name, the scientific name, is an Amorphophallus titanium, better described as a corpse flower. Yes, a corpse flower. When it blooms, it's expected to release an odor described as, and I quote, a putrid stench of rotting flesh. It is known for blooming about once a decade, and when it blooms, the odor is horrific. That's a good illustration of what idolatry does to us. We think that it makes us beautiful. We think that it will nourish our hearts. And yet what it does is it actually rots us out and makes whatever we hope in to be putrid and ugly and horrific. See, what Psalm 97 begins to reveal is that the only hope that will last, the only thing that we can tie our lives to is Christ and Christ himself. We have to have a fundamental re-altering of what we understand to be reality. If we will not die to selves and be made alive in Christ, then we are nothing more than like weekend at Bernie's trying to dress up the corpse and drag ourselves around and think that we can pass muster. See, the coming of Jesus, as we saw in verses 7 and 8, how can these two be in total opposite to one another? The coming of Jesus will be unbelievably wonderful towards the, for those who anticipate Him and have found life in Him. 
but it will be undeniably terrible towards those who refuse to see their need for him and who refuse to come to him in repentance and belief. Some will see the Lord that they have yearned for, that they long for, that their heart so aches to see. Others will see the arrival of the God whom they have denied and rejected, mocked and made light of. This is what our world is marching towards. We are getting closer each and every day. So how do I identify and forsake the idols that my heart might cling to? Ask yourself, what does your heart trust? What does your heart delight in? If it's comfort, if it's security, if it's acceptance, if it's relationships, if it's whatever it is, you forsake those idols. You look to the one true God who offers you not a better way to make yourself better, but he offers you himself. And in him are an endless supply of delights. You might see how these two total opposite attitudes or perspectives could exist. One person dreading the coming of the Lord, another person delighting in it. Perhaps one of the clearest illustrations or places to look and how we will know where we will stand is simply in our attitudes towards gathering with the saints to worship. For one person, they're delighting in gathering with the saints, recounting and being reminded of the gospel, sitting under the preaching of God's good and life-giving word. For another, it's boring, it's irrelevant, it's unimportant. It's a good way to diagnose where our hearts are. And so, brothers and sisters, this promise of Christ's reign over us that grounds our hearts, that our worship must be grounded in the knowledge of this reign and in his coming righteous judgment. How do we bring verse 8 to life? How do our hearts fly? and delight in and, 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 and wonder at the glory of God. Well, this takes us to the third point in, in verses 10 to 12 as we conclude. Because the Lord reigns, we can rejoice in righteousness. Hear that again. So the Lord reigns over His creation. The Lord reigns over false gods. And then we get verse th- uh, the, the third part. Because the Lord reigns, what can we do? We can rejoice in righteousness. This further expands this call to true worship, to true obedience. Verse 10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. The Christian can hate evil, can serve the Lord in joy, can give thanks to his holy name. Why? Because he or she sees that God will address and bring correction to all the evil that exists in our world. And we can do this because we look back at the wonder of Christ having endured evil himself. The wonder of the gospel is that Jesus came and endured horrific injustice and gives hope that evil will not have the final word. And the only way we have, or, or the only, uh, the, the way that we can know that that is certain is that there is an empty tomb in the Middle East. Because he was crucified at the hands of evil men, he will return to judge evil and destroy idols. You can hope in him even as evil rages throughout our world. You do not have to wonder or doubt whether or not God is good 
or whether or not your faith is compatible with the challenges of this complex and difficult world. Rather, our faith helps us to make sense of this world and helps us to see our Lord who will right the wrongs of this world and who will establish a perfect, just kingdom where He reigns in all glory for all of eternity. One of the great glories of heaven, it's very low on the list, but one of the great glories of heaven is you will not need a home security system. You will not need your ring doorbell camera. We will not need locks on the doors. Because our king will reign in perfect justice and righteousness, and that will be the heartbeat of his kingdom. This, word, this Psalm 97 enables us to hope in the Lord in knowing that our God is not detached or disinterested from the evil or hardship in this life. Rather, He shows us you can worship me because I am attentive to it, because I promise to write it, because I promise to correct it. This enables us to peacefully trust the Lord. You do not have to believe the lie that reality is right here, right now, while Christianity is detached from all of this world and all of the pain that, it is, that, that exists. No, you can hold on to the anchor of Psalm 97 and to your Lord who knows pain, who knows suffering, who knows hardship. And this enables us to serve Him faithfully. We, of all people, must be people of justice, of righteousness, of truth. And we can, we can and must contend for justice and righteousness and truth because Psalm 97 shows us that our God is a God of justice and righteousness and truth. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. How do you read the news and then enter into worship? You don't do so with some sense of this is just detached from the world. No, we enter into worship with the hope of the promises of Christ and the return of Christ and the confidence that He will right all wrongs. Our worship of God must be grounded in knowledge of His reign over us and of His coming righteous judgment.